Vodka. 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 Hey everyone, it's Amber Love of Vodka O'Clock Podcast from AmberAmess.com. And today my guest is author Rob Brunet. Just to remind you that we are an explicit website and podcast, so if you're under 18 or easily offended, then um, perhaps this is not the show for you. But today, Rob and I are actually going to talk about writing crime fiction and the life of a writer. So, um, you know, maybe some of that content will be a little bit more uh, risque than than talking about any other kind of writing. So, Rob, thanks for joining on the show today. Thanks a ton for having me. So, um, I think it was, gosh, uh, did we meet in Philly? Is that where we were? No, we met in, in New Jersey. Yeah, in uh at Words in Maple Maplewood, wasn't it? Oh yeah, that was it. What a great little shop! Yeah, yeah, uh, they really uh, uh, great shop, and they really put a lot of effort into uh, readings and events that they put on for authors. Really appreciated that. It was at the start of getting on the road, and uh, loved what they did. Yeah, it's a really beautiful place, and um, the main floor area is. Uh, you know where, where all the the books and retail aspect of things are, and then they had the lower level where the readings are, and it was like so comfy and everything was pretty and clean and well lit. So it was just really, really a nice place. Yeah. Um, now let's get some background. Have how long have you been writing? Uh, I guess writing seriously um, over the last three or four years. Um, probably five or six years before that noodling at what would become my first novel. But way back when, um, uh, literally as a kid, I always assumed I would wind up being a writer. And I kept on writing until I was about 30, and then I stepped away for it, from it for a while. I think it's, it's one of those interesting things where it's, um, at least in the schools that I went to, it was part of everyday grade school curriculum, um, or at least every year, you you had to do some writing. Whether it was you know one year it would be about journaling and one year creative writing and that sort of thing, and then it gets kind of beat out of you. Like <laughs> like there's no such thing as you know full time writing. That you need a day job and you need to be a writer at night. How does it how has it worked for you? Actually, from from a school standpoint. I can touch on that. Um, we, uh, I was lucky. I went to a high school where we actually had, in those in those days, there were five years of high school in Ontario, and we actually had an English writing as opposed to an English reading class available in three of the five years. So I was able to indulge what was already a desire to write with um, uh, teachers who gave pretty decent assignments and. Uh, really good feedback um, through my teens, and then, and then, and then you wind up, as you say, getting a day job. And I found ways to make money with my writing through my twenties, but a lot of that writing was corporate writing, which drew me further and further away from creative writing. As much as I, you know, write things that I thought were wacky and cool, and I'm sure were mostly drag. At least I felt I was finding finding a way to earn a living with words. It's it's interesting that you mentioned doing corporate writing because um, while I've been job hunting and I and I look for keywords like writing and publishing, uh, it's amazing how 
the results are nothing at all like what I'm talking about, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's, um, you know, corporate writing, like you said, it, you know, it's, you're lucky if it involves something like web content and not something dry, like technical manual writing, <laughs> which I've done. I've done tech manual too. It's just, um, it's very dry. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, I wrote a, uh, one of the first things I was seriously paid for, I'd been paid a couple times before, the one of the things I was most seriously paid for was actually writing a user reference and technical manual for a piece of software back in the 80s. Um, and that, frankly, that ultimately led to me becoming involved in software and becoming involved in the web, um, but much more from a software and a, uh, an entrepreneurial perspective than, uh, than the writing part, which started me there which is a long way away from crime fiction, which is why 40 years ago I got serious about it and said, no, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it now. Yeah, that's my background was very similar. I, it, I came from different software departments where I had to write the instructions and do the screenshots for click here, and then you should get this result, and then you could click here. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, now we it brings you around to uh, a few years, which doesn't sound long but maybe did it feel long for you uh no the last the last four years have been whizzing by um uh the uh, i at the start of them i thought i had a finished novel or was close to having a finished novel it turns out i had no idea what was involved in actually finishing a novel so i spent two years doing that getting it to a point where it was saleable and in the in parallel uh started uh again writing short stories um, because I heard so much about platform and you have to get your name out there and you have to find readers. And um, really the, um, the last two and a half years have been a lot about trying to uh, find my way through uh, that jungle of, uh, maybe jungle's not the right word, but, the, um, uh, but it does feel like a forest of um, opportunities and, frankly, often um, uh, seemingly unproductive activities, uh, such as uh, social media supporting work that you're doing and um, uh, writing into markets where you know there's only a handful of people reading it and there are people that largely you've already got some kind of connection to. But you know, or at least I feel, that um, most of that effort is headed in a direction of establishing a presence as a um, uh, as a crime fiction writer. And let's talk about um, some of those websites, some of your favorite websites, because um, I was, I'm familiar with most of them. There was one there that I hadn't seen before in your, your list of short stories, but um, Shotgun Honey, uh, the Ellery, Ellery Queen of magazine, of course, Crime Spree Mag, um, but you also had uh, Out of the Gutter, yeah. On, online um, for places that you submitted to. And so why do you, do you go to all of those different places? Is it because some of them have um, different word count lengths? I think Shotgun Honey's is really short. Uh, yeah, Shotgun Honey is like it's 700 words. Um, and there's been a couple of times when I read a story and I say, wait a sec, that's more than 700. And I, I literally cut and paste and count it and, say, and realize, oh, he let him get a couple hundred extra. But he makes it clear that if you're going to use more than 700 words, you better have a damn good reason. So I, I, it, I mean, the reality is when you start uh, noodling around online looking for where the 
voices that you've uh, you know found or encountered are hanging out, you find that there's a lot of the, uh, the well there's two things that are happening one people who are writing noir crime are often getting stories posted in places like shotgun honey or out of the gutter or um, or in anthologies like thuglet or um, all due respect and so you see what someone else is doing and you say okay well that looks like a market that maybe I can target one of the weird things that happens with me is sometimes I look at my work up next to some of what's up there and I think it it looks like it's a cozy um, up against some of the the real grit and real dark that that's out there. Yeah, I'm glad you you bring that up because there's I sort of I came from from being a fan of cozies. It's really where I'm most comfortable with reading. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> and I've um, all of my friends that I seem to make. I don't know how this happened. I think the universe just likes to play with us and fuck with us sometimes all of my friends seem to be very dark gritty noir writers <laughs> and you know I read their work and and I even said it like a week ago I'm like okay I just finished that I need to go stick my brain in a bowl of kittens right now <laughs> because it's it they really can um just be so like they're all shelved in the same place and they're so far apart and I'm like no I write fun murder that's it <laughs> I don't know I don't know how else to describe it. I'm like my murder there's going to be a pie next to it and I'll tell you the recipe <laughs> well yeah and, and I when I a lot of I mean um some of my short stories are darker but a lot of what um I write it, when the violence happens you're supposed to get a chuckle out of it and that's not to say, like, some of the really dark stuff, I think that the intent is as well, that you're going to get a wry chuckle out of um, the badness that happens. But but there's a fair amount of noir that seems to, uh, uh, and I don't want this to sound um, critical because it's not where it's coming from, but it seems to stretch into a place that it's, that it's shocking or it's attempting to uh, shock. And the, and the problem is, we're so inundated with shock media from so many different directions right now, even literally uh, the news these days. And I'm not talking about these days, this week or anything, but just the, you know, the, the, the idea of violence or malevolence. Um, I mean, it sells newspapers, it sells television, so we get more and more of it. So it's almost like fiction has to go a step further than that. Or feels that it has to go a step further than that, and I'm I wrestle with that a lot because I don't that doesn't actually inspire me. It doesn't turn my creative crank, and so I uh, sort of wrestle with some. That's why I say sometimes I look at something that I wrote and I think, geez, it looks it looks awfully sweet and unassuming next to uh, something darker, sharper edged. Yeah, we even saw this last night. I don't know if you uh, watched the Golden Globe Awards, but I stayed up and I actually watched them, and they were presenting George Clooney with a Lifetime Achievement Award. And they, you know, play this video montage of his greatest movie roles and directing parts and stuff like that. And then they show the humanitarian work that he's done in the Sudan. And, and it was like these graphic images of him standing over dead bodies. Yeah. 
And it's like, do we need that in an award show to honor this person? Like, did we really need that? And a lot of people on Twitter I saw were, were very alarmed by that, especially because there are different time zones. So I was watching it, and it was really late at night for me, but other people were like, it's 7 o'clock, did I need to see that dead body? Mm. And I, I don't know, I, but I do agree that I think there's a, a desensitization that we go through, and things have to be stranger and weirder and more and more graphic and what what is you know how can i make uh, this character suffer even more it's like well you know everything's got to be escalated yeah. and comics comics is a you know a great example of this especially comic book movies they always have to escalate everything because as if a bad thing happening isn't enough for the audience to to get a story part of, part of what i like about that is that if you don't want to go there, if, if if you want to do something that does not uh, leverage shock in order to deliver entertainment or in order to, to deliver a message, then you have to work a little bit harder to find something meatier to do that with. And I think, uh, you know, I, I enjoy the I don't. I don't. I'm not going to say I'm any good at it yet. But I enjoy the challenge of trying to craft a story or or, or create a character and put him or her in a situation that is uh, interesting or challenging or maybe even shocking without it being shocking because of some graphically bad thing that's happening. Well, I remember from that reading that you did over here in in Maplewood, you tried to impart your characters to be such very real people that even. Um, like their intelligence levels came out so clearly. Like you knew that this one guy, like in a way you, you sympathized with him because he was doing something really stupid, but you know, it was also um, a sympathy level because you felt bad for him. You felt bad for, for somebody not being able to, to think so clearly or to have the best um, head on their shoulders. Yeah. And even if they were the bad guy, like you've got, um, you can tell us about stinking rich and uh, the the drug culture aspects of it and, and how you came to develop all of these different, these different characters and how you made them endearing, even if they're bad guys. Cause I mean, a lot of people like sexy bad guys, mm. but I think, I think some of it's missed when it looks like every single bad guy is that way. Like, does every single bad guy need to be handsome and wealthy, and you know, like follow this these tropes, like and have women all the time, and to, like you know, I think it helps to see a rainbow variety of characters. Yeah, I don't, I don't think any anyone could accuse not in the context of Stinking Rich, and actually rarely in the context of what I write could accuse my characters of being uh, particularly bright or uh, handsome. I guess there's one guy actually in Stinking Rich who's um, dumb as a doorpost. And he, um, uh, I found that some of my readers liked him and it took me a little, little bit to figure out that the reason they liked him was because they noticed that he was getting laid a lot and, um, and therefore he must have something going on um, in his sort of uh, stupid, long, blonde-haired, not really buff, because I describe him early on as 
having let his body already start to go to pot in his early 20s. But, but for some reason, because, and the only thing I could come down to, uh, bring it down to, was because one after another woman kind of looked at him and said, well, he's a bad boy, and therefore there's something interesting about him. All of a sudden I had readers who, who liked him. Um, I'm talking when I was you know, workshopping the thing and, and, and putting it together, so I blew up his part a little bit. Um, I, uh, some of the, uh, like, like almost every character that, uh, that I write starts out as nothing more than a quick impression of a person in a situation. And one of the things I enjoy the most about, uh, crafting them is watching them reveal, reveal themselves to me. Um, and I, I guess I, I tend to uh, allow myself to follow my trains of thought into people's dark sides. Um, uh, and it's not as if in, in real life I do that a lot. I actually tend to sort of sway the other way and look for the good things in people all the time. But um, maybe inside my own head, I spend a lot of time sort of probing the, uh, the, the darker what ifs. And therefore, when I'm writing a character, um, I kind of like to, to probe that. And so I guess what, where I'm going with this is if you're, if you're going to write about somebody, even if they're a character and you're, you're making them up as they happen, um, and you're going to be looking at their darkness, you, you kind of better like them. Because if you don't, at least for me, if I don't like them, then I get, um, uh, I get sort of turned off and disinterested in them and then they become they become more cardboard, and and, uh, and and then at that point, the writing sucks. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I was wondering, when you are are figuring out characters, are do you have a particular process, or is it that they're developed as you are writing them, uh, or, or do you do something like already have some details of at least main characters or people that you know you want in your story? Do you have all that worked out on, like... Um, sketch notes and sheets and stuff with, with key bits of information? Uh, really the former. It's, um, and I, I, I've been, uh, recently I've actually been beating myself up about it a little bit too much. Uh, I, I love to write organically. Um, I love to put a character that I, that, I, that I know because I've already written something about them into a situation and walk somebody else into the scene and then figure out why they're there and then uh, later and on subsequent passes and as I work through the story, flesh out that other character. Um, and I don't really like to use someone as just a, a walk-on without knowing a little bit of what makes them tick and what's behind them. Um, so I'll end up writing that, but I'll really try to write it in the context of the story. At, at the end, in, in, in editing and revisions, I may strip a fair bit of that unnecessary backstory away from characters that don't really, that aren't part of the major arc, if you will. Um, but I don't ever sit down and, or I have not sat down and sort of sketched out, here are all the characteristics of this character or a bunch of main aspects of this character. Um, when I say I've been beating myself up about it, it's because as I've tried to do that, um, thinking, well, if you're going to, if you're going to be more productive, then then that's a tool that a lot of people talk about and you should employ. The, pro the problem is, uh, 
I find if I've sketched out a whole bunch of things about a character and then I go to write them, I'm just not as curious about them. So, you know, it's like, well, I already know these things and I'm supposed to write these things about the guy. And I don't care because I already know those things. So let me go write about somebody else that I don't know about. Um, that's, that's, yeah, it's interesting. It might be very amateurish, but, uh, you know, I my favorite moments in writing are when I get to channel or watch what's happening and uh, I, I don't think um, uh, I don't think that you can do something like uh, write fiction without without driving enjoyment from it because uh, it's not easy to do I what I've been doing recently is even in my TV watching, I've been going back to favorite shows that I've already marathoned through, like Murder She Wrote and Leverage and um, and White Collar. And what I noticed is the efficiency that they address their characters. Like Murder She Wrote is a a great example because nobody that has a speaking part on there is insignificant. And it's really made me rethink about characters and what purpose they have. And, you know, I can't just have somebody come on to a scene for really to, to serve no other purpose than to give the character that's taking the action somebody to play against. And that's sort of a problem that I've, I've been struggling really, really hard with. Is, is there something that you've ever come across where... Um, you found a better approach than people uh, than, than just engaging in dialogue. I just want to make sure that I'm tracking properly. Um, so, in, a, in, a, in other words, you're uh, recognizing moments when uh, a secondary character is only being used sort of as a tool for the first the, for, the, for the primary character. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I I know that I um, I know that I don't like it when I see it. So when uh, when exposition is showing up in dialogue or a character is very obviously being used um, only as a as a mirror to the main character or um, uh, or or even as a plot device to to move something forward um, uh, and it got like I hope I think in a short story it's easier to be ruthless because you you really can't waste any of the reader's time on bits and pieces of anything that doesn't have to do directly with the story that you're writing. And I think the amount of words that you're dealing with makes it easier to sort of polish and edit until every single sentence is moving to um, to the final one. In a in a in a novel, it's easier to meander, and uh, frankly. You know, in in a lot of novels, including good ones, the the meandering becomes part of the uh, the reading experience. But if it's if it's a a character who is otherwise purposeless, then your reader, I think, can can detect that and maybe maybe annoyed by it. Especially if the reader sort of invests some interest in that secondary character, only to find out that they were you know, they really didn't have to remember them. Um, so I have a ton of characters in Stinking Rich, and I actually had a bunch of 
a bunch more characters that got left on the cutting room floor. But everyone who uh, remains, you know, with maybe one or two small exceptions where you've got two characters in a, in a, in a space and a third one who's there momentarily, um, but pretty much anyone who remains has a bit of a story arc of their own that, that, that will get closed off before the end of the book. And, and I found that if, it, if they didn't, then I, then I went in to build in a little bit more of it so that they had more, more reason to be there. Um, I don't know if that answers what you're asking, but it's been what I've been working with. I, I definitely agree that it's uh, that short stories there have the an advantage in that way that you're it, it has to be very efficient and lean, and if they don't serve the purpose, then they need to to get out. Uh, do you have any favorite authors that you think? do this, uh, the character development and interacting of, of characters really well that you look to as motivation and influence? I always wrestle with the, the with that favorite author type question. And I actually didn't really ask it as favorite author type question, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer it this way. There's a guy named John Burdett who writes um, a series out of Bangkok. There's like um, Bangkok 8, I think, is the first one, and then Bangkok Tattoo and Bangkok Haunts, and then there's a couple after that that no longer have Bangkok in the title, but are part of the same series. And he uh, he has kind of, from a Western perspective, some characters that are uh, almost unbelievable um, because we can't necessarily relate to them. Uh, he does a good job of making them relatable because he's sort of um, just very briefly his his main protagonist is a um, half-Thai, half-Farang cop. I don't know whether he's necessarily a detective. I think he's a detective. Uh, so being half-Farang or half-foreigner or half-Western, he's able to kind of communicate to the Western reader the some of the otherness of uh, Thai reality. His, like, yeah, even these... Um, um, even when I've re- read characters of his where it's like, I just, I can't pretend to understand what their reality is about. Uh, and therefore, they could become discardable, right? Like, if they're not a main character, they're secondary, they're kind of, um, uh, it would be easy to read and understand and get the book and enjoy the book without necessarily getting there. But but he will really make a point of saying, and and I'm going to make you understand where this um, uh, other character is coming from, um, or where this sort of when I say other, this sort of secondary and also sort of two steps removed from a, uh, you know, from a North American perspective. That's good. And he, but he's uh, the author himself is American. Uh, I think or? he's British, uh, and I and I think he now, uh, if I remember his history correctly, uh, he was. Uh, um, uh, a, a, a lawyer in Hong Kong and who now lives between Bangkok and the south of France or something. So he's kind of he's got a, he's got a few different threads <laughs> running through. That's him. cool. Yeah, I just watched a whole bunch of interviews with uh, with people like John Grisham and um, David Baldacci. I think is how you pronounce it. Um, all these these guys that had these other careers. Um, and some of them continue in just a small capacity even to maintain these other careers that ended up being the genre of their novels. Mm. Uh, and it's, 
it's you know, I was watching one of them was like this panel discussion at I don't know, it might have been like a mystery writers of America convention or something. But it was it was a panel of about five or six people. And I was thinking, okay, so the only way to become a crime fiction novelist is to be a lawyer or <laughs> um a, you know, a former reporter, you know, anybody who's who's been a journalist in like big city journalism, like, wow, I'm never going to have those things. <laughs> yeah. And it's, well, I, I, I ran a, a, a web company that, I mean, we did some, some really cool, interesting creative work for, um, uh, for some uh, Hollywood studios around titles like, you know, Frank Miller's Sin City and uh, Alias and stuff, and, and that was that was the cool end of what we did. But we also did a ton of software for banks and insurance companies. So, you know, you take software and banking or insurance, and then you say, yeah, I'm going to use that to craft really interesting stories. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe if the story is about how somebody's, you know writing some really cool application that's going to rip off a whole bunch of money really fast. Um, yeah. Okay. I could see how that could be interesting, but not necessarily to me to write. Um, but, but like how many, you know, how many serial killers have written serial killing novels? Right. I don't, I don't, I don't think you have to have done like the whole write what you know, I get a little bit. But I think that if you can't write about what you don't know, then your work's going to become pretty repetitive. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, I also tend to fall down the rabbit hole of research, mm. which I forget as soon as I'm done using it. So otherwise, I'd be filled with all kinds of brilliant knowledge. <laughs> but um, <laughs> like yesterday, I got to look up things about... Um, I don't. It just comes up in the news once in a while that there'll be a counterfeit, counterfeit vodka on the market and people can get really sick from it uh, aside from the fact that it's just illegal. But, um, so I, you know, I get up down these, down these rabbit holes of, um, Oh, well then let me look up this. Oh, let me see what these auctions were and let me see where, you know, mm. uh, where that led to. And it's like, I've done zero writing. <laughs> what is counterfeit vodka? Um, I, I think like anything else, it's a, a less genuine product they'll they'll make it um and slap other labels on things uh basically just uh when it comes to vintage stuff like i yesterday i was reading about some vintage cognacs mm -hmm. they actually fake the bottles fake the labels everything oh, okay. and then and then try to um sell them off but the counterfeit vodka they um they uh, I, they weren't american cases but whatever the component is that's inside is like can kill you <laughs> like it's just not something you should be ingesting which which i just find baffling because um, i not I'm, I'm no expert but it seems to me that vodka i know they just you can vodka can be incredibly refined but straight ahead vodka is one of the easiest things to make isn't it yeah i think um as far as <laughs> depending on what crop they're using uh, i asked somebody yesterday because you know we were very uh, a wheat culture here um, because of our, our crops and stuff and corn and I asked her if there was 
a preference for making vodka out of wheat or corn, and she said that uh, wheat is definitely considered the stronger a commodity mm. as far as vodka is concerned. Um, and I read some reviews where people said that the vodka they were test tasting was so bad that it actually tasted more like corn, like it just wasn't filtered enough. Because you can take cheap, low-grade vodka and filter it yourself. I put it through a Brita pitcher a bunch of times, and it'll improve the, the um, vodka itself. Huh. And you've just then, you know, saved $15. It's just a matter of do you want to do that. I mean, it's, you know... Most people don't, and some of and it's a, a brilliant take on marketing as well that I was reading. How Grey Goose vodka, um, the the selling point of Grey Goose is that it's from the water in France, but it was started by a man who owned a you know monstrous liquor corporation, and he came up with the name Grey Goose one day. And had no product. <laughs> and, it, and it took him eight years to figure out what to do with this name. And he was an American. And he decided to um, start manufacturing vodka in France because he knew that it would sell better if he could say that it was French vodka. Huh. Um, but the the water over there, like the key ingredient aside from the, the grain that they're distilling, is really apparently the water. And that's, this, that's always my argument about coffee, too. There are some places that I'll go and I'll stop for a cup of coffee and it's vile. I'm like, well, not only is it probably really cheap coffee beans, but they probably aren't doing anything really to Im improve their water quality. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the weird research rabbit holes that I go down and stupid crap like that. I, what's it like for you? Because um, in Stinking Rich, you, like I said, there's drug culture and you probably have some firearms to contend with. What sort of research uh, do you get, get into? Um, I, uh, uh, in, in the case of Stinking Rich, the, the one thing that I had to dig into a little bit was what's it like inside a, a modern grow-up. And and the thing is that it really was only to populate um, a couple of quick scenes, uh, but I couldn't just make that up based on, you know, having, yeah, you know, having watched Weeds and, you know, a couple of things like that. So I uh, googled a little bit about that, the um, as well as you know naming some of the you know strains of pot, but a lot of um, the um, the interactions that that I end up describing are much more uh, happening much more on a on a on a, on a personal level. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the right word, but it's just I've got I've got two characters doing something in, with each other in a context in a place, and I I have picked a context in a place being rural Ontario that I'm reasonably familiar with, I mean, very familiar with, that's where I've spent um, all of my non-city time uh, uh, life. I mean, I, I spend time in the country. I enjoy that. So I had, didn't have to research a bunch of that. In fact, if anything, I, I tried to imbue some of the, um, uh, some of the parts of the story with, with my feelings of what the country is like, what 
the, the, the forest experience is like, that sort of thing. The, uh, so I don't, I don't usually pick a story that is going to cause me to um, uh, do too, too much research. That said, there's, a, there's something that I'm working on where I engaged in, in a little bit of strange research in that um, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm writing a piece about a, about, it's a, well, it's a novel, um, about a Bible camp gone bad. And as I started to work on it, I was getting, um, as one will, visits from Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and I engaged them. And I engaged them right from the start with, this is research for me. I said, you know, I'm, we're going to have these conversations. So if I if I if I say if I talk to you now, you're going to come back. But I want you to know, you know, uh, and I you know, said this is where I come from in terms of my religiosity or lack thereof. But then uh, I want to talk. I want to I want to talk to you. I want to engage you about whatever it is that you're trying to sell to me. And they did, and they did. They kept it up for about a year and a half until I uh, told them they sh- they were not. They had, they had managed to look up my my phone number, which meant they actually found my wife's name and number, and my wife's name is different from my name, so it meant they had sort of done a little bit of digging to get the phone number. Um, and I didn't appreciate that, and I told them that, and I said, you know, I don't want you to do that. And then they showed up a little bit later. They were a little bit apologetic, um, and I sort of reminded them that, of that fact, and I think they pretty shortly after then realized they weren't going to make the sale, and they went away. But... Um, in the process, I mean, I, you know, after, after each conversation, I take a, take a few notes down in terms of what, how it was that they were trying to, uh, to pitch me, which, you know, actually felt a little bit like when I was getting pitched by Scientologists when I was a teenager in Ottawa. Yeah, I, I, I personally, um, I, I know exactly what you mean, and I'm, and it's a, and it really interesting that you went through that amount of. Uh, I guess not inconvenience, but some somewhat inconvenient because you know how they are. Like you said, they're selling yeah. something in a way, and they they want you to part with your money ultimately. Um, when I read about uh, something religious and um, particularly something Wiccan, and they get it really wrong in a book, <laughs> um, or uh, like for example, I I, ju- I just read a book where they, you know, a character went through something that any normal person not fictional <laughs> would have been really traumatized by and this character was just so not believable so i the lengths that that some people will go to in order to bring authenticity to their stories i it it's it's really appreciated i don't know if people realize how much time and energy that could take um one of the the comics that I'm looking forward to to being completed is by a creator named Dean Tripp, and he wrote a graphic novel called Something Terrible, which documented his history as of childhood sexual abuse, mm. and it was something that you know he did for himself as an as an exercise to work through this at you know having already been through everything that he could to handle his his situation and get all the the proper help that he needed he had finally reached a place where he was ready to share this story and he ran a kickstarter to fund the project 
But then what started happening is all of the feedback that he was getting became so overwhelming reading other people's stories about their abuse and survivalness, and if you will. Um, he started to get really overwhelmed and depressed again and um, triggered again. Mm. So it's there are things that I think maybe some authors don't take into consideration with, with their content. And, um, I mean, some of the religious stuff, like, you know, you're talking about a Bible camp gone bad. I mean, some of it really is very, they're just cults. And they don't, you know, they might meet the definition of a cult, but they've never, like Scientology, the, meets the definition of a cult, but it's too powerful and will never ever see an end to it. It will just, you know, I can't imagine what could possibly happen to end a religion. Like what, what could possibly end the Catholic church? Right. <laughs> you know, I'm sure Dan Brown <laughs> would, would have something to say about what it's like trying to um, point out these hidden facts about the Catholic church. But um, is there, do you ever have to, have the kind of feedback where you've regretted something that you've written? Uh, uh, not yet. Um, well, yeah, there is, there is one thing. Um, uh, <laughs> and I'll come back to that in just half a second, only because I want to say something about, about re relig re religion. Um, uh, and it's that, um, and it, so it's, I may, I may, I may get some pushback on, on what I'm writing and how I'm writing it, but it's coming from a place where um, I uh, uh, I grew up with a lot of religion. Um, I consider myself to be a reasonably spiritual person. Um, I do not currently have time for any, and when I say time, I, I mean I don't really have time for um, any particular church in my life right now, I don't swear off the possibility that that would happen again because I've experienced the good side of that um, in my past. And I recognize that for a lot of people, there's a lot of good. But I think that there's not enough questioning of religion from within each religion to um, uh, get past some of the bad aspects of religion. In other words, you know, at the, at the end of the day, a religion is ultimately a, uh, a human effort to amass a following, um, usually with some kind of economic uh, objective. So at the end of the day, like, you know, one of the things that's so stunning about the Catholic Church is the wealth that's present within it. As In as simple a way as take a walk through like go see the Sistine Chapel, and in order to get there, you have to walk for what feels like miles and miles past all of these riches that have been brought to the Vatican from around the world, and you know that you're just looking at the tip of the iceberg. Um, uh, look at the churches that have been built and the money that's gone into that. Um, most of you know, if if a, if a 16th century, and my history is lousy, but if a 16th or a 17th century Italian guy decided that he was going to build a church in his town because some other guy in his town had already built a church in his town because of one, he wanted one bigger than the other guy, well, that was a demonstration of wealth with 
um, a combination of I want to do good by my community by creating this beautiful church, but really it was about somebody's uh, ego and demonstrate demonstration of the wealth that they had. So, uh, you know, I'm going to go some of those places um, in in this book, and I suspect that some people will be ticked off at me for going there, but I'm not coming at it from a place of disrespect. Uh, I'm coming at it from just a place of questioning. So the, the, re one, the one regret that I have had recently is I got a dead dog at the beginning of Stinking Rich. And I've had conversations with people about you can't kill the dog. And I've had conversations with booksellers where they've said, well, I can't really hand sell your book because you killed the dog. And, or with an author recently who said, um, uh, well, if you kill the dog, it's really just bad writing because there should be another way to show that your character is bad. And to which I responded, well, actually, I did it for the laugh because I thought it was kind of funny the way the dog died and the dog kind of deserved to die. Um, now, if that means, like, I'm glad you had the warning at the beginning of this interview because it means you're talking to a guy who thinks that not only a person but also a dog can die and it can be funny. Maybe I should regret that, but I don't, I don't want to. Um, you know, I think there's enough. Uh, I strive hard enough to make my writing accessible that I can't keep every bit of my you know, darkness off the page. It's interesting that you that you bring up the dog because I was just reading somebody on on Twitter who was saying that they came across. Um, he's like he's like I kid you not. In the last, I think he said I shit you not. I shit you not. The last um, three manuscripts I've read and last two movies have all had, uh, you know, the dog doing this, and uh, and it was just it's interesting that a dog comes up so much because uh, when I went to a, a mystery writer's of America workshop, Reed Farrell Coleman said one of the things, one of the tricks about creating your villain is that the villain will always have a dog or the villain, you know, like Mr. Bigglesworth and it would be a cat. You know, the, whatever your villain is, your villain will have one little thing that they're soft for. Huh. But, um, Spoiler warning if you haven't seen John Wick yet. Um, it was a fantastic movie. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, and I don't get out much, so I don't see a lot of movies. <laughs> but um, it was it was breathtakingly filmed. Uh, it was Keanu Reeves' best performance that I've ever seen. But here's, you know, so here's the spoiler part. You can uh, fast forward, if you will, a little bit. When the dog dies, it was, it, it was exactly what you're saying. It was these bad guys will stop at nothing. They will destroy everything at, like to to literally raise his life to the ground mm. and just and gut it. So that's, you know, so it's interesting that there are these different philosophies on how you take care of a good guy character and a bad guy character and they all involve these plots with dogs. <laughs> Even if it's just this little tiny thing, like at the end, all the good guys will save a dog, you know, <laughs> somebody's going to go out and adopt another one. Well, I mean, and I, I've had um, a couple dogs in my life. Um, I've, I've had some cats in my life. Um, I'm, I'm often at somebody's home meeting an animal for the first time and hearing, oh, they don't usually, um, you know, sorry, my, whatever it is, <laughs> they don't usually seem to like strangers as much as they seem to be liking you. So I, I think I'm able to 
communicate well enough with animals and I like animals. Um, but to me, they're not like, like there's no, there's no more don't go there about an animal, um, than there is about people. But we have gotten to this kind of funny place in our relationships with, in particular with dogs, where, um, uh, uh, they're being elevated kind of beyond people. And maybe it's just because everybody knows that every, all people have bad parts to them and, well, animals don't. Well, no, I think animals do too. I, ha- I did a, uh, I took a bunch of, I did, I did a bunch of pictures when I did my, my book tour recently with a pair of rubber boots and I was sort of putting them in different situations about the stinking rich that I was experiencing as I went around. It had nothing to do with the story, but except for the rubber boots were meant to represent, you know, kind of the the backwoods character of my novel traipsing through uh, the states and encountering wealth in different places. Um, and one of my favorite ones was um, I came across a window in Winnetka, um, Illinois, just outside Chicago, where it was some kind of a pet store. And Winnetka is a wealthy suburb, I guess. And in the window, there was a sign that read canine massage. And um, I think my, my tagline on it was, I wouldn't have thought dogs knew how. Um, <laughs> but it was just the idea that, so you take your dog there and your dog gets a massage, which I thought was absurd. And so I came home and I started telling people about it. Well, a couple of people were looked at me in all seriousness and said, wow, I should see, figure out how I can get that for my dog. I was like, you know, I can't afford to go for a massage, and you're going to take your dog for a massage? I, you know, anyway. At least with doggy yoga, I understand because it's more like a bonding experience where you are there in the yoga class with your dog. Okay. Um, and doggy daycare is meant to let them run ragged and socialize just like a toddler while you're gone. Yeah. <laughs> but canine massage, I think, is would have to be really specific, like um, in a therapeutic way you know like did this dog suffer an injury or a stroke and is in need of this therapy but i can't imagine other than just uh, spoiled rotten dogs which clearly exist um some of them eat a lot better than people well i have a a very dear friend who's got two dogs that she loves to death and they're great dogs i forget their uh, what kind they are um uh maltese i think maybe anyway really tiny um, uh, really tiny, toothless dogs, and um, and and that's because they they had suffered their rescue dogs, um, and uh, <laughs> uh, um, I was I was doing this little doggy rant in communication uh, with her, and 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 knowing that it, that I was speaking to someone who had um, bought matching life jackets for her dogs when they went on vacation, and I was like, but like don't dogs just sort of know how to swim? Like, isn't the dog paddle kind of that human attempt to be as good as a dog when you're thrown into the water? And it's like, yeah, but they look really cute in the life jacket. So we're good. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose the life jacket is the emergency case. I mean, if your dog for some reason is treading water for four hours, they might be exhausted and drown. But I think when it comes to things like, uh, Cujo. <laughs> I don't. I think at this point we realize that not always animals are are not always off limits. Um, I think 
it's usually done with a wild animal, like in the case of Jaws mm. or Deep, Deep Blue Sea or any no- number of w- wolf movies, wolves attacking and bears attacking. Um, but it's usually not going to be a domesticated animal unless there's a paranormal force involved of some kind. But Cujo was just an asshole. Right. I mean, the dog was, I mean, the dog was sick, you know, can't play the dog, really, I guess. But, I mean, that movie was terrifying. I can't imagine reading that book. No way. I would have thrown that book. No. The, no. I, I, I can't do scary stuff, and this is, this is really well known. That's why even what, like talking about the, the border between crime fiction and horror, I think some people cross that, that line. Mm. And they, they don't realize that they're delving into thriller horror as opposed to mystery crime fiction. Um, and I, you know, uh, I don't know if it's, if it was ever, um, something that publishers decided or booksellers decided, but it's kind of like the way that we, we purchase reading material now is so vastly different, but it's, if you are putting your book up online, like for example, let's take Stinking Rich. If you put up Stinking, Stinking Rich is over on Amazon, like around 14 bucks and do you know did you have to um discuss like what you would be filed under uh there was a little bit of uh conversation about that there's a there's a, there's a um what i forget the name of that categorization uh system right now but uh because uh down and out is uh an indie publisher um they uh, uh engage their authors more wholesomely, or sorry, more fulsomely, whatever, in the process. Uh, so we actually did have a have a conversation about it, and um, uh, I know that it landed in noir, and I, um, uh, I, it may have also got tagged in the humor category. But there was some kind of a limit to how many categorizations you could apply. Uh, maybe one more on paperback than on Kindle, or vice versa. Um, but it's crime fiction, and it, I mean, it says a crime novel on the on the cover, even though it's uh, it's a little bit atypical of some crime in that it's 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 comedic. I mean, that's that's yeah, it, it could be it, it it's a it, it's a funny story about criminals, sort of. Yeah, yeah, and w- which works well. Um, even even when something is very dramatic, like the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. There, there were still so many clever things in that that made it feel lighter than because it was very. I mean, it was a serious plot, but that character verbal was just um, he was he was lighthearted and charming and endearing and you know nerdy. He just yeah. he just seemed like a, a, a soft squishy cupcake. And he just happened to be a bad guy. Um, well, like, or like, or like Snatch, right? I mean, which I haven't seen. Oh, you're kidding? Uh, oh, do it's so. Uh, it's uh, it gets nasty and it's hilarious. I think sometimes I get annoyed if I feel like I like I mentioned the Golden Globes last night. Uh, I was like, these people have a really strange notion of what comedy is, like. There's just the things that they put in the category for comedy. I'm like, really? I just or comedic actor. I'm like, just because something had 
some clever lines to it, to me, is not the same as, like, a barrel of laughs comedy. And I, I guess when it comes to things like shelving a book or winning an award, whatever it is, you have to, the powers that be, will choose the category that they think they stand the best chance of dominating. And if, you know, like, one of my favorite shows is Monk. And it's like, it's a dramedy because it's very dramatic. But, um, because again, it's that sort of cozy murder mystery thing. But it's, my my ex-husband used to get really upset if I, because I would marathon that show. I mean, so I would have it on for like hours and it, he would just, at, at a certain point, need to walk away. But he's like, this is not funny. He's like, this man has a mental illness. It, you know, he's, He's traumatized. There's nothing funny about about him. They just, they have some funny lines once in a while. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I guess. Like, but I saw you know Monk like a cozy. You know, like I didn't think they were making fun of him necessarily. I think if there was a character that did mock him, like they would call, you know, sometimes a, a character would come on and call him names or something. It was done in thoughtfully and intentionally that this character is a jerk. They're calling him names. Is your reading? habit the same as your writing habit do you tend to to stick with a, that certain genre um no i um I, I have been reading a lot more crime fiction over the last couple of years for a couple of reasons um one getting exposed to new authors and 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 hearing about them so strongly from people i'm getting to know that i think well i, I better read them um and the other is wanting to read the work of people that I'm getting to know. So those two things sort of feed off each other. And my to-be-read pile is overwhelmingly crime fiction. Um, uh, but I have, uh, I still thread some um, reads in that uh, are just for me or just for pleasure. Uh, and they include, I mean, I've, I've always been um, a huge John Irving fan, and I'm actually, I still haven't read um, uh, in one person, his last book, and he's about to come out with his next one. The reason I haven't read his last one is I'll, I will read that when I'm going to be, I know I'm going to be in the country and unbothered for uh, a week or two so I can sort of savor it, um, you know, 30 pages a day, every day, you know, consecutively sort of thing. I don't want to read it in between anything else, and I don't want to read it when I'm distracted because I, you know, I only get a new novel from the guy every two or three years. Um, uh, I, there's a Canadian author that I'm, uh, uh, who I think is just tremendous, uh, David Adams Richards, who really writes um, really kind of big literary novels, um, but they're they often feature petty criminals or people in um, uh, sort of um, down and out situations. Um, uh, so in that way, there's some crossover to the crime fiction, but he's really not a crime fiction writer, even if, you know, um, as someone I met at BoucherCon, uh, um, I think it was Janet James said, uh, if he had, if he classified, if he was, cla if he was classified as crime fiction, he'd probably sell more. Um, I hope I got the credit right there in terms of who said it. That's interesting. Now, I know that you live in, uh, up in Canada with your wife and kids, so is 
reading and writing something that the kids have also uh, embraced the way that you did growing up? Um, not as much as we'd like. Um, they do read. Um, they, they, they do something weird, which I just don't get. Uh, they will start books and not finish them. And I never understood that because they'll say, yeah, yeah, I'm enjoying it. But then they'll be distracted by something else and not read it and say, yeah, well, no, I never finished that. Um, and th But they'll pick up, you know, four other books in the meantime and not finish them, too. Um, so uh, in that sense, I think we could have done a better job of encouraging them to um, read more. Um, they do, but they do read. And actually, both of them are good writers. Uh, uh, and my son in particular um, who's still in high school, uh, gets kudos for the short stories um, uh, uh, that he writes when he writes them as part of an English assignment or something like that. It, it was, it's one of those things where um, I, I actually can completely relate to kids starting books and not finishing them because when I was uh, that age, I, it was very difficult for me to read. And I we used to have a certain requirement of books and book reports, you know, obviously to, to do. And the, every time, the, you know, the words book report got uttered, I would just, I would just sink. I'm like, Oh no, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Um, and I have no idea how I ever got A's in English class. I just, I don't even know. I guess a part of it was because of the the other things that count for credit, like the participating in class, which I'm always that dork that asks a bunch of questions, uh, you know, turning in things on time and writing. The writing part was fine. But when it came to the book reports and the reading stuff, I was awful. And yet my mom read to me as a kid. Like, she did all the reading, so that was probably it, was I liked other people telling me the stories, like listening <laughs> so I I can remember being um, uh, it must have been in college or the summer between semesters or something and I and I just kept feeling so stupid and uh, and one of my other friends was saying that he had felt like a stupid kid too so I picked up a Tom Clancy book I picked up Clear and Present Danger which is like the best of the Tom Clancy stories and and I got through it, and I have no idea, like, it, I, I did it just as a challenge to myself, because I'm like, I'm too stupid to read this book, and it's like 600 pages of military stuff, hmm. and, I, and I managed to do it. Uh, you know, and I, I don't know what it, you know, why it hit me at that moment. And other times, plenty of times, I would just, like, pick up a book because I was out somewhere, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to go in and eat alone by myself, so I better go grab a book. And I'd go, and I'd grab a book so I could sit down and have dinner or coffee or wherever the hell I was alone and not really be alone because I had a book with me. But I never finished this book. Ah. <laughs> um, well, you're giving me hope. Uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully they will find it because now in the last, like, three weeks, I've read two books. So... <laughs> The pressure of, of also like book blogging and wanting to talk to other people about books. There's there's I feel like there's so much immense peer pressure now. Whereas I don't give a crap if I am not into Game of Thrones and Doctor Who and my friends are all talking about that on Twitter. But you know, all of a sudden people start talking about books. I'm like, wow, okay, well I can't really go to this conference unless I actually <laughs> am like a reader. 
Because it's a question that people are going to ask. They're going to ask you, what are you reading? Do you read uh, short stories at all? Yeah, once in a while. Um, I, I picked up Jedediah Aries, uh, I think is how you pronounce his name, uh, Fuckload of Shorts recently. Oh, yeah? Um, and uh, Thomas Pluck, who's a friend of mine here in Jersey, yeah. he has uh, books of short stories. And some of the, I mean, I, again, they're like, they're they're brutal and urban and tortured, like people, I mean, I don't want to be like, I'm not saying like the type of torture, like a horror movie where you peel somebody's skin off and torture them slowly kind of thing, but I just mean the characters are so tortured that there's literally no light at the end of the tunnel for these people. And so I'll, I'm glad that those are short stories because I'll be like, okay, I just devoted 50 pages to this. I need to go read something else or I will then go and watch Murder, She Wrote for five hours to get out of my system. Um, you know, I, I'm grateful for short stories. <laughs> uh, I sometimes think it's because a lot of my short stories are darker and I sometimes think that it's because uh, I don't want to stay. I mean, there's a couple of them that I, there's no way I would want to stay in that, that dark place longer than it took to, uh, to write that. Um, uh, but again, they're not they're not as dark as uh, uh, some that I've read. So. And and actually, when you, it's funny because you mentioned um, uh, uh, Tommy Pluck and Jedediah, and um, they you know they're they're uh, they're representative of so many people who write really dark fiction in that um, they're uh, some of the, you know, nice is such an un, um, uh, or o- overused and um, undescriptive word, but some of the, in quotes, in air quotes, nicest sort of teddy bearist kind of people that you'll meet. And I'm not talking specifically and only about Jedediah and Tommy, but so many people who write this stuff. Um, uh, and I mean, I'm, uh, people have said it again and again, but just the, the, the friendliness, the generosity, the, um, uh, the positiveness of people who write really, really dark stuff is, um, is actually a lot of, as well. it's, it's, a, it's a fun thing to experience. Um, and that, but that's true of horror writers, too. I'm like, how, how do you guys write such disgusting things? That, I mean, literally, like, you know, when they when I do meet people in horror, because for a while there I was only around horror comic book people, um, because that's all the shows that we have in Jersey. We have porn and we have horror, oh. so I you know would just go to to be at a Jersey con, and it was I'm like I couldn't even stand to to be around some of the cosplay because it just freaks me out. Oh. <laughs> but there you know again sweetest, nicest, most docile people in the world, friendliest people. They go out of their way for their, you know, for their friends. It's like, what is in your brain? Where do you, <laughs> how do you sleep at night? With you, you, uh, uh, I think, um, uh, 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 sharing a beer with, uh, Todd Robinson and Angel Colon, Cologne, sorry, Cologne, I think it is in, um, in New York last fall. And it was Angel who, who was saying, look, um, uh, I think that people writing this 
get all of that absolute dark nastiness out on the page, and so there's none left in them. I hope so. <laughs> I, I I just don't. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from because I can just sit and stew. Like you know that, uh, you know the old saying that you're staring out a window for eight hours, and it's like, honey, I'm writing, yeah. and it's you know it's true. And I will just sit there, and I'm like can't come up with the things that I that I see other people coming up with. Hmm. You know, like the perfect crime and the perfect heist, the perfect murder, whatever it is. Like like where you know it I, I'm I'm definitely much more of a um you know, read something in the news and it even just like a little nugget of a thing that then spirals into something totally different. Mm-hmm. But I, I I need to just uh cultivate from from other places because I feel like inside my head I'm like there's nothing there and I'm sure there is any I'm sure my my exes would agree but um <laughs> there, there it, I just do I need that external stimulus from from you know like the news is a great place just to get yeah. the most horrific stories and uh, and even when you when you talk about writing dumb but endearing characters there are so many stupid criminals out there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the Darwin Awards are fantastically full of them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, and that's, um, I'm like, I, I think I, like you, um, will look for those, look for those prompts. I mean, I think that the, the newspaper is a, is a great source of prompts. One of the things I've started doing a little bit is, is actually, um, uh, uh, sort of blank paging myself in terms of, um, you know, craft an opening line to a story, uh, maybe an opening paragraph, and then um, if there's nothing, if there's nothing more, then draw a line on it under it and go to a new white page, and those those lines then can become prompts for later. Um, uh, and an example that I had that was a story that I ended up writing based on an opening that I really liked. And when I finally sort of carried on that opening and um, told the story, I realized that the opening was irrelevant. Cut it. Um, started with paragraph three or paragraph four or whatever it was, and that was the story. Well, I, I took the opening and put it back in the drawer, saying I'm going to use it to start start whatever that story was supposed to be. Because it had nothing to do with what I ended up writing. But it was just something that got the juice going and got the, um, you know, got got the story started, if you will. I've done that too. Um, I've started using Scrivener, and I'll, uh, um, if I have to just cut something from a, a chapter scene, I'll paste it into a dummy document and stick it in the trash bin, you know, to make sure it's not going to be uh, be compiled ever into anything. Yeah. But just to to have it there because um, one of the people that I've talked to is Josh Stallings. He's been on the show and he'll do free writing and just free write 10 pages and hit delete. And I'm like, but my heart would hurt, mm. you know, <laughs> like, even if it's garbage, I want that somewhere. And he's just like, Nope, it's gotta go. <laughs> uh, uh, what a discipline. Yeah. I think I'd, I'd be with you. It'd be, it'd be going in the drawer somewhere, yeah. even if it's an electronic drawer. 
So um, let's talk about where people can get Stinking Rich and, uh, you know, your other work that's out there. Uh, sure. Well, well, Stinking Rich itself is, um, uh, you know, it's uh, available uh, via Amazon, uh, via Down and Out Books, anywhere. It's not stocked widely in mainstream bookstores, although it's in a lot of uh, indie bookstores. Um, and um, the, the short stories um, are up on uh, the Shotgun Honey for some of the flash fiction as well as Out of the Gutter. Uh, I've had um, shorts published in um, the, the Disparate Thuglet and Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. Um, and uh, I know Ellery Queen will run another one of, of mine later this year. And if... Uh, if I can come up with something worthy, maybe Todd Robinson will let me back into the pages of Thuglid. Um, uh, and, you know, I guess that's it. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> via my website. It, okay, yeah. so they can find links yeah. at, uh, yeah, at links. you know, which is just your name spelled out, robrenee.com. Yeah. And, uh, of course, you're on Twitter. Do you, are you are you big on Twitter, or are you just sort of, like, grudgingly participate in Twitter? Um, I... Uh, I I come and go from Twitter. Um, I, I was way too much on Twitter about a year ago um, and enjoying it and fire hosing, like just totally like drinking all I could from the Twitter stream and, uh, and had to turn it off because it was just becoming uh, all consuming time wise. Um, uh, probably spend more time on Facebook, but um, uh, social media in, in general, I find is, um, uh, as necessary as it is, it, uh, I've got um, I've got the kind of personality that I'll, I'll if I'm enjoying something, I'll just keep doing it again and again and again and again. It eats up my time. So. I think that there's this fusion now of websites where you submit work that are also also have the social media social network aspect to them. You know, you start friending people and favoriting authors and favoriting, you know, creators, things like Patreon. I just, Patreon, I just did a, a podcast about, um, but I just learned about Wattpad mm -hmm. and um, I just saw someone tweet that there's another new network, Chanillo, and then there's Sue, TSU. So there's all these other places where it's all about posting your work but you still have to go through that social network growth of, hey, people, I'm over here, add me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, um, I, I think that there's a limit to how much you can possibly expect because, first of all, if your fans are on all of those pages anyway, they've already seen your announcement somewhere else. Yeah. You know, so I, I look towards people who are engaging. Um, there are a couple authors that do nothing but promote themselves, and it's annoying. Yeah. It's like, okay, I will follow you out of support, but I am so glad that Twitter has a mute feature. Yeah. Because I, you know, I know to go look them up when I'm in the mood to look them up. Yeah, I actually, um, uh, uh, I dreaded and, and went through um, about four months of um, uh, sort of self-promo about uh, stinking rich on the launch and um, uh, uh, you know I've checked in with a few friends and they, they, who told me it was not uh, nauseating but um, it's hard to try to come up with yet another way of saying um, 
and here, by the way. The other thing is, though, you're really talking to the same people again and again and again. Like you said, you, you know, your fans already know that you're there. Um, I think there's, there's, I don't know where the tipping point is, but, um, uh, you know, as an author, I look forward to a day when um, uh, I could once in a while post something on something that is clearly um, an author page and not a personal page and only talk about life on the social media uh, uh, on the social media page. In other words, that division between personal and professional. Uh, but I know I'm, far, I'm a long way away from that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great goal. Um, I'm, I'm like that too. It's one of the reasons that I even maintain like a, a, a fuller website because, you know, I'm like, well, there are these things that I have to say, and I want a place to say them. And, you know, the people that are interested will see that link and then we'll click that link. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but otherwise it's lack of interesting things. Like, you know, some some creators only post memes. Like they that's literally their social engagement. Mm. It's like things that they think are hilarious or funny or whatever. And it's you know, again, it's it, it lacks the engagement of participating with other people. Yeah. Um so some people do a really great job though. And that's you know, I I think that uh that there's definitely a balance. Just like, you know, work and family balance and stuff like that. So at some point your your social media needs to not take over your life. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Rob, thanks for, for all your time. Again, you guys, uh his website is robbrunet.com and um that's where you can find the links on all of the other information. Pick up his book Stinking Rich. Uh, if you can't find it at a bookstore, it is on Amazon. And Rob, any last thoughts before I let you go? No, just um, thank you for the uh, for the interview for the conversation. You make it really uh, uh, really easy, and I'm uh, glad to have been here. I look forward to actually hearing more of the, these conversations that you have with other people. Thank you so much. Well, I, I hope that you know uh, the traveling back to the states might not be that easy, but if, you know we'll maybe find a the same circle at some point again because it was just a kismet running into you here and, um, I, and I will be I'll be back I'll be back through next year sometime on the way to uh, I mean I'll be in New York for Thriller Fest and then I'll be down to Bouchacon and Rally so I love your I love I love your country and I like spending time there <laughs> well Rob thank you so much um, you guys don't forget that you can of course follow me at Elizabeth Amber is the Twitter handle um com, and if you uh, have a social media site that you don't know if I'm on, just ask me because I'm on just about all of them, but not necessarily actively. Twitter is really my place to go. So um, that's the best place to you know, find me for questions and, and things like that. Uh, until next time, everybody, cheers. <laughs>